Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis, and this week I talked to Stephen Bush and George Eaton about Jeremy Corbyn's first conference as Labour leader, and Tom Gatti talks to our contributing editor Erica Wagner about a new biography of Ted Hughes. back from Labour Party conference and looking forward to the Conservatives, which starts this weekend. I'm joined by our Staggers editor, Stephen Bush, and our political editor, George Eaton. Um, I'm going to start off with you, George. What was the mood like at Labour Party conference? Calmer than people expected, given how divided MPs and members are over Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. And I think that's partly because it's so soon after Corbyn's victory. He does have a huge mandate, as, as everyone acknowledges. So some opponents stayed away, some MPs didn't go. Um, others uh, kept a very low profile and others recognised that although they don't have to pretend that they're great supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, there's little to be gained from them at this stage, so relentlessly criticising him. I like that line in your column about the kind of, basically they're letting a thousand flowers bloom. Like, so everybody's in this in the kind of honeymoon period, really, because it's kind of like you go, well, actually, I disagree with him on Trident. And, and that's kind of now okay but it won't be okay forever will it exactly so i think um, next year's conference and even before then it's going to get a lot trickier because jeremy corbyn has kicked a lot of tough policy decisions into touch by saying we'll have a debate we'll have a discussion now he's not going to be able to say that forever at some point he will need to to lead and to reach to reach judgments um his speech um i think fell below the low expectations that a lot of mps had and that they were very troubled for instance by his almost complete failure to talk about why Labour lost the last general election, uh, immigration and the deficit, two of the issues that hampered Labour at the election were, weren't mentioned. Um, it didn't have a clear theme. It didn't have a, it didn't have a clear structure. But um, the activists loved it. And his position in the party is, uh, in that sense, is a strong one. John McDonald's speech went down very well. Uh, Corbyn's uh, supporters are delighted that the message is now that Labour's an, an anti-austerity party. So I think actually, um, at this stage, in terms of strengthening his position, probably what Jeremy Corbyn needed to do was to rouse his supporters, to convince them that, that, that the party has changed. And most have left feeling that it has. Um, and Stephen, I know you were, a, you were a bigger fan of John McDonnell's speech, weren't you, and then of, uh, of Jeremy Corbyn's. Why was that? Um, because John McDonnell's speech had a very strong theme, um, it was very well delivered and, and, 
And McDonnell is clearly aware of the need uh, when you are the Chancellor and you are the, the second most important person, uh, both in the government and the opposition, you need for you to have your own sort of personal brand almost. The way that Alistair Darling, George Osborne, you know, the Ed Balls all successfully cultivated a, a kind of sense of themselves as a significant figure. And actually Alan Johnson, who is a figure I admire greatly for other reasons, but as Shadow Chancellor was fairly disastrous at building any uh, profile around himself. And he was, you know, he looked, you know, he looked very reasonable. Um, he used uh, the the personal stories of the people who literally have been killed uh, as by uh, by austerity in a very affecting, but very calm way. And it it had one clear headline. Um, whereas the Corbyn speech, what I didn't like about it was just that it had no theme. And ultimately, it was a nightmare for broadcasters. Um, the morning afterwards, I, I went on the the BBC and I was talking to the producer about it and I said oh it must have been a nightmare for you to clip and he said yeah it was impossible to find anything short enough to go in that kind of like you know the and yeah when they've got the that bump yes because you go like and Jeremy Corbyn yesterday delivered his message to activists clip where he kind of goes and today we are going to seize back power or whatever it is yeah Yeah, I thought that was interesting I thought the things that were good about it were um, I think his wry humour really helps him he does have a I mean obviously he has a very antagonistic relationship with the majority of the media and there was a bit of a slightly I felt self-indulgent bit at the beginning where he kind of talked about various evil press barons being mean to him but it it came across quite well in the sense that he just seemed more sort of more in kind of wry sorrow than in anger Um, talking about you know the kind of asteroid hitting the earth and and, and his backing for that in an early day motion Um, I thought that stuff worked quite well he he was quite ragged and he did trip over his words a lot but weirdly I've spoken to quite a lot of people who who liked that they said so they kind of went well that just proves that he's a you know he's a person doing a job I think it's part of if you know if you're already set up for that you like the kind of appeal of somebody who's not incredibly polished um but again Stephen just to just to wrap up I mean what Tom Watson's speech was very different to both of those speeches wasn't it I mean George wrote a blog when he said that this is a kind of warning to the Corbynites I mean to be honest, Tom Watson's speech was a fairly standard boilerplate deputy leader of the Labour Party speech. He went, we did great things in the past, everyone cheers, uh, you know, we can do great things in the future, but go out, get up up your asses, and go out and knock on some doors. It was basically the who's NHS, our NHS, how are we going to get saved the NHS, winning the, the election. It's only in the context of um, Labour's current political situation that going we need to win the next election is can be interpreted as a as a rebuke to the leadership as, as a rebuke yeah. to the leadership um yeah i mean i don't i don't think it is a, but yeah and there was always going to be the problem because the the leader speech was so bad then mcdonnell and watson were going to end up overshadowing it well then um because you picked out both of them didn't you as your winners from the conference george mm-hmm. who else was a was a winner so um i think luke akehurst who, who won't be too well known to, to listeners of the podcast, but he's the organiser of a group called Labour First, who are positioning themselves as the new home of, of Labour's moderates. And there is a sense among among Corbyn's opponents that all of the old factional visions within Labour, Blairite, Brownite, soft left, blue Labour, they all seem rather irrelevant, given that Jeremy oh. Corbyn from the hard left of the party is now is now running the show. And there's a sense that what the moderates have in common is much more important than what divides them. And so I think you're going to see a lot more 
um, in that area as they try to, to, to organize themselves and, and, and to win back control of, of the party. I think Hillary Benn had quite a good conference in that foreign policy was one of the issues where there was concern of just how would Jeremy Corbyn reach an, reach an accommodation with, with his MPs. But he is now clearly committed to campaigning for EU membership during the referendum. Uh, there's no talk of, of withdrawing from NATO. There's not much talk of, of, of NATO at all now. And he, Hillary Benn was able to say in his speech, we would support airstrikes, I would support airstrikes in Syria with, with UN backing. And he said, you know, collective responsibility effectively doesn't exist. Now, if we think back to when it first became clear that Jeremy Corbyn was going to win, we all imagine that the Shadow Defence Secretary would have to back mm. Uh, the abolition of Trident, that the Shadow Foreign Secretary would have to support, say, withdrawal from NATO. And actually now it's clear that those who chose to serve under under Corbyn recognised that he was more malleable and that they could uh, change his positions to their advantage. Well, very fi- um, very quickly, finally, Stephen, it's Conservative Conference. Um, you wrote a column this week in which you said, you pointed out that it's a party with a, a falling membership, falling activist base. You know, Labour has been re-energised this summer by this influx of new members. Yet the Conservatives are incredibly successful. What's your what's the thing you're most interested, most looking forward to um, seeing at Conservative Conference? Uh, I mean, to be honest, I, I, I expect I'll dread it from a day-to-day perspective because they're all going to give the same very boring speech. Um, but what, which yeah, is there, yeah, they are a very impressive machine. So they're fairly grim to cover because they will say exactly the same thing. It'll be security, 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 security. But the fear for Labour is in 2020, when they're knocking on doors in marginal seats with this huge um, army of activists they now have, and that's an incredible resource for them, then what they will hear back on the doorstep will be security, security, security. So I'm interested to see, because they don't have Crosby around anymore, they're no longer paying him because he's off um, doing a similar thing for the Canadian right. But to what extent the culture of Crosbyism kind of endures within the Tory machine? Can they do it without him? Because we forget how woeful they were at that sort of thing before he came and started smacking them all around. Well, uh, that's all we've got time for. But for the moment, thank you very much to George and Stephen. Hello, my name's Tom Gatti. I'm culture editor of The New Statesman, and I'm here today with... Erica Wagner, author, critic and New Statesman contributing writer. Erica has a piece in the current issue of the New Statesman about a new biography of Ted Hughes. Ted Hughes, The Unauthorised Life by Jonathan Bate. Erica, um, nice to have you here. It's very good to be here. Why unauthorised, first of all? The reason the book is described as unauthorised is because it was originally authorised. Jonathan Bate had the approval of the estate of Ted Hughes to write what was described as a literary life quite far into the process of his writing and researching. The estate removed the authorization. Uh, So Jonathan Bate had to take a different direction with the book. So the finished book, is it a literary life or is it a non-literary life? What's your feeling? It is both a literary life and a non-literary life. Biography is a very complicated, difficult genre. How much does the life relate to the art and vice versa? There's quite a lot of Ted Hughes's life in this book, but he had a very... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot... 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Very interesting life. So it's very difficult to untangle those two things. Quite why the estate removed the authorization, no one seems to know. I mean, the most obvious reason one would have thought would be to do with Hughes's love life, but it wasn't unknown prior to this biography that he had a very active love life and wasn't the most faithful of partners. No, it wasn't entirely unknown, to say the least, and I would argue, um, as far as the estate is concerned, that Jonathan Bate is a very serious writer and biographer, um, it's hard to see how, from the outset, you could have a better choice. Um, it's a very serious book. It's quite a scholarly book. Um, but again, there is a long history of estates being difficult when it finally comes to people digging around in archives. So what if the book tells us anything new about Hughes or, or, or sheds any light on his life or work? What are, what are the key things you've taken away from it? One of the most um, interesting things in the book, I think, is the way that he goes into uh, one book, um, Shakespeare and the Goddess of Complete Being. Jonathan Bate is, of course, a scholar of Shakespeare. And this book, when it came out in the 1990s, um, was, to say the least, disregarded if not scorned. Um, and Bate makes a good case for resurrecting this book, saying that Hughes was in advance of his time in the way that he uh, in the way that Hughes looked at the way Shakespeare's life and his work were connected, and also in the way that Shakespeare dealt with religion. It's also, of course, a very detailed book in terms of going through the archive and looking at the way that drafts of Hughes's poems, particularly in regard to what he wrote about Sylvia Plath, developed over the years in a way that hasn't been seen until those archives became available. And Erica, the book discusses the poems of birthday letters in, in presumably in some detail. You had a pretty instrumental role in the initial publication of those poems in the Times. Can you just tell us a bit about that process and, and, um, and how that came about? That came about because in 1998, the Times was uh, offered the serialization of this book, Birthday Letters, which no one knew existed. I was the literary editor of The Times. Back then, I hadn't been literary editor for that long, um, a couple of years, and one day, I was called up into the editor, Peter Stottard's office, uh, and shown a manuscript. And I saw that the manuscript was by Ted Hughes. I saw that it was called Birthday Letters. I saw as I turned the pages that it was dedicated to Frida and Nicholas, the two children that Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath had. And when I looked at the list of poems, I saw that the first 
poem was called Fulbright Scholars. And really at that point, I knew with amazement what this book was, that it would be Ted Hughes writing about his marriage to Sylvia Plath, something he really hadn't done before. A, a trickle of poems had appeared in different places. Um, but these 88 poems um, of birthday letters really did cause a stir in the literary world, it's fair to say. And the Times published 12 poems over the course of some days. I wrote biographical annotations to these poems, talking about how they connected to the work of Sylvia Plath and to their lives together. And you did meet Hughes at some point in this process, didn't you? I actually met Hughes before this process began. I met him, I think it was in 1996, when The School Bag was published. And he did a reading with Seamus Heaney that The Times sponsored. That was quite a pairing to see um, afterwards and spoke to him for a little while. Um, and I can confirm that he was an extraordinary presence. This morning, we've just had the shortlist announced for the Goldsmiths Prize for Experimental Fiction, which, which the New Statesman is involved in. One of the most interesting books on that list is a, is a debut novel which uses Hughes uh, as, a, as a starting point, specifically pro. You've, you've read this book, haven't you? Um, I, I uh, have Grief, this is book. The, Grief is the Thing with Feathers by Max Porter. What's the premise of, the, of that novel? A scholar of Ted Hughes. He has small children, two boys, and his wife has died very suddenly in, it seems, mysterious circumstances. He is writing a book, this scholar, about Ted Hughes's book, Crow, and that's the premise of the novel. He'd always been obsessed with those crow poems. And um, I also, that, that was one of the first pieces of Hughes that I, I read properly, read seriously. But they are something that you can become obsessed with. Well, moving on to a piece by Margaret Atwood on a book by Canadian um, scholar, uh, writer, translator, Robert Bringhurst, called A Story as Sharp as a Knife. The Classical Hyder Myth-Tellers and Their World. Uh, this is a, a book about a series of Native American oral epics that, that Bringhurst has resurrected. And this has been published and known about in, in Canada for, for a little while, but this is the first time it's been published in the UK by the Folio Society. Erica, you're one of the few non-Canadians who, who has actually known about this, this stuff for, for quite some time. Um, maybe you would just read us a, a very short excerpt of, of one of the pieces so we get some kind of feel for, feel for the writing. I would be delighted to do that. There was one of good family, they say. She was a woman, they say. They wove the down of blue falcons into her dancing blanket, they say. Her father loved her, they say. She had two brothers, one who was older and one who was younger than she. And then they came to dance at her father's town, they say, in ten canoes. And then they danced, they say. And then they sat waiting, they tell me. So these, these myths, these epic poems, they're, they're full of 
sort of strange transformations, animals, humans, spirits, are they, do you recognise in them the the European folk tales and myths that, that we already know, or are they, is reading them quite shocking and strange? Um, is a very different experience than reading European myths. Um, these myths were told by two men, one called Handel and one called Sky. And another thing that makes this book unique um, is that most, most myth tellers telling stories to anthropologists who came through North America around this time never had their names recorded. So we know the names of these artists, and that's one of the important things about this book. Um, so it's not just the name of Robert Bringhurst, the translator, um, which is important. Um, as you say, I discovered this book some years ago now, and it really changed the way I think of literature. And I would say that if you're listening to me or looking at the New Statesman and thinking, really, why am I interested um, in the classical Haida myth-tellers and their world, I promise you, you should be. The work of resurrection that Robert Bringhurst has done, and he taught himself Haida over the course of many years um, to make these translations, the way that he sets out these stories, creates the world of these stories, explains how they came to be sitting in the American Museum of Natural History in New York, um, and gives the reader insight into this vanished world, is like no other book I have ever read, and I don't say that lightly. The imagery is really astonishing, and we were talking about Ted Hughes's Crow a minute ago. Um, Ted Hughes was very interested in myths from all over the world, um, and there is a, certainly there is a connection, you can find a connection um, to the kinds of stories that I think fascinate human beings in every culture all over the world. Erica, thank you so much. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, and produced by Anna Leskovitz. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.